Welcome to Pod Bless America. This is the internet's only podcast where we talk about uh, events of the day, of the, the civic world, uh, here at the intersection of, uh, of Christianity. I'm Zach Pierce. I'm your host. Uh, I'm the, the pastor of Lutheran Campus Ministry at the University of Colorado. Boulder, uh, co-host of the Vinyl Preacher podcast here on the Tiny Piano Club podcast network. And as ever, I, uh, I'm joined by my uh, co-host, uh, <laughs> regular guest here on Pod Bless America, your annual, again, let me remind you, your annual podcast at the intersection of politics and Christianity, Peter Severson. Oh, thank you so much, Zach. I'm honored to be both somehow the host, the co-host and the guest. Uh, I like that that's that's sort of an Andy Richter dynamic where I'm kind of sitting in the guest area, but I'm also co-hosting. So if I can be the Andy Richter, I'll be it. I always appreciate that Andy Richter was name checked in the Lost and Found song about famous Lutherans. Yes. Um, (laughs) And I want to interview Andy about how how that went for him. Like, (laughs) I don't see him. I, I enjoy Andy. He's hilarious. I enjoy him on. Enjoyed him on the uh, the Conan O'Brien show. Oh yeah, uh, I'm not sure that he claims that Lutheran identity super. Not strongly. as strongly as some might. Yeah, that's that's fair. Well, you know, uh, good on him for at least uh, being name checked. I mean, he's having a name. He has a name that other people said. We <laughs> we've checked it. So in that case, I guess I'm even more honored to be in the Andy Richter role if he's a. Uh, sort of historical Lutheran in some fashion, but, uh, right. Anyhow, yes. Sorry. Thank you for uh, the introduction. I should mention though, that I am the director of our Lutheran advocacy office, um, Lutheran advocacy ministry, Colorado, part of the, uh, Bishop's office here for the ELCA in this region, the Rocky mountain synod. So very glad to be back to talk to you about our very exciting Colorado ballot measures for the fall of 2021. Ooh, we're so excited, all of us here at the podcast, to have you again as a guest. If you're looking for Peter down at the office of the bishop in the Rocky Mountain Senate in Denver, Colorado, uh, he's in the room with a breaker box. Uh, so any lights go out? Uh, you know, a yep. little power surge, I'm, head to Peter's office. I'm on top of it. You know, I had a colleague uh, long ago who always thought that this was a, a rather unfortunate aesthetic feature of my office and thought I should cover it up with, you know, some, some fabrics or uh, tapestry and I've failed to do so. So, yeah. That's... I think it's a sign of your power that at any moment you could bring the synod office to its knees. <laughs> that's true. I'll just trip all the circuits at once. Well, mm-hmm. if it's like the Internet's not working. Hmm, I, don't, around. I don't know why that could be. Why does it smell like gas in here? <laughs> Peter. Uh, Peter, we're really glad to have you on the podcast. Thank uh, you. It is an off year, I believe. It's 2021. It's what some people call an off year. I mm. don't think it's what you call an off year. Well, because uh, there's no off year in the world of advocacy. Oh, heavens. <laughs> that is that is very true. There's no there's no time off when it comes to advocating for the needs of our neighbors uh, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That is true. Uh, but it is, you are right, that there is a... In common parlance, people might call this an off year because people know the even-numbered years as, you know, those are the years we often get our big headline-grabbing elections in terms of partisan political candidates, all that kind of fun stuff. In Colorado, because we are a ballot initiative state where voters can put things on the ballot directly and vote directly on public policy, the even-numbered years are often the big popular years for those kind of things. Uh, 
you may remember last year we had, oh boy, 10, 11 things on the ballot, maybe more. I would advise listeners not one. to check my math on that because I probably should remember, but I don't. In these odd-numbered years, though, where we are, quote-unquote, an off-year, the reason that it's an off-year for ballot measures is that there are very strict guidelines on what can be on our statewide ballot in an odd-numbered year. So anything that appears uh, for all the voters in the state has to be related in some way to the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. That provision of our state constitution uh, says that we can have measures related to Tabor on off-year ballots. Uh, so this is why we've got three things on the ballot that are ostensibly related to Tabor, although <laughs> there's a lawsuit that's uh, <laughs> regarding one of them that suggests uh, maybe it isn't. So we'll, uh, we can get into that in just a moment. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Only three issues. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, we're going to talk about each one of them here on the podcast. Yes. Uh, I'm excited in particular because I've done my homework, Peter, and Lutheran Advocacy Ministry Colorado has taken a position on all three. Sometimes they sit them out. Yep. Uh, you right. know, but the, the voice of, uh, of, of the prophetic voice of Peter Severson will not be quelled this <laughs> go round. But before we get into that, Peter. Yes. Um, I thought it'd be helpful if we, having you as an expert here on the podcast, uh, we're talking about one of the most important news uh, events, uh, news items in the zeitgeist, in the, uh, you know, in the news, Peter, um, and having you on, who better to comment upon this issue than you? Um, I would be honored. I don't know what it is, but I love a zeitgeist, so... We're, we are seeing, we're in the midst of a uh, real time of polarization, of brokenness, of a lack of confidence in our leaders um, and our institutions, Peter. And one of those institutions is um, on shakier ground than it's been in, in, in many, many years. Um, Jeopardy, Peter. Uh, we've been through some difficult times in the search for Jeopardy host. Uh, you're a former Jeopardy contestant. Yes. Um, uh, Mayim uh, Balak. Is doing great, yes. but I don't think she's going to like hang. She's not going to be the host, like regular host, because she wants to be a movie star and stuff, understandably. Right. And so we're back into the search. Uh, what's his name? Richards. Uh, out mm -hmm. after uh, dubious. I mean, stop the steal is what I was saying to, to the folks who were running the Jeopardy host <laughs> oh <my> search. <laughs> that's that's what you were saying to them. Well, I, that's what I was saying. I'm to sure them. they received it in a very neutral way that made a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, so you're asking me if I have hot takes uh, or opinions yeah. about mm -hmm. what we're doing here? I mean, oh, boy. Uh, yeah. So I should say for the listeners, I mean, yes, uh, I was indeed a contestant on Jeopardy when I was 17. Uh, no, I don't often uh, or ever bring this up <laughs> only because <laughs> only because I don't know. It, at this point in my life, it was literally half a lifetime ago. It was a very... Um, influential part of my life when I was a teenager. Uh, how could it not be? It's such a weird and unusual experience. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, I'm very excited that I got to do it, and it was it was wonderful and amazing. Uh, it, it's also just one of those weird things that like you kind of can't casually drop it into conversation, uh, <laughs> just of your own accord. I'm not yeah. gonna walk around meeting people. And be I went like, to college uh, outside of Boston. Oh my gosh! Well, not in Boston, nearby. <laughs> Oh, not Just Tufts. Um, <laughs> no, no offense to all of our, our Tufts alumni listeners. Um, 
Yeah. So anyhow, it's just not the thing that comes up casually. So it often, like, if if it ever comes up, it's you know a friend of mine brings it up, uh, like like right now, in a way <laughs> where I feel like you know I'm having some dark secret exposed, which is it's not really a dark secret. It's wonderful. But in terms of the new uh, the new drama, the new high drama at Jeopardy, I mean, uh, do I have strong opinions? No. Do I have uh, a good idea of who should be the host? No. Do I have uh, a completely random suggestion? Uh, sure, of course. Yeah, I do. that's that's what we're here for. <laughs> well, okay. So here's here's my thought. I think Alex Trebek. If for those who are familiar with his background, if you've if you've not read his. Um, uh, I guess you could call it an autobiography, which I think is called My Life. I read that a few months ago. Um, you know, he talks a lot about his background and where he came from. And, you know, he came from a, a broadcasting background. So he was he had been on TV a lot. He had hosted a lot of random sort of one-off game shows. Um, this, I mean, this that's the kind of background that I think served him pretty well because he knew you know, he knew kind of the ropes of TV before he got into it. So that's why, I mean, it makes sense to me that they're like looking for somebody who has TV experience. You know, mind the Alex been on TV shows for a very long time. Totally makes sense. This, this Richards character, well, he'd been producing shows, I think for a long time. I think he had a podcast. He he had a podcast, which (laughs) I'm remembering now is what got him in trouble. So now I'm wondering why I'm recording a podcast. (laughs) I'm sort of having a, Hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna just temper my uh, my hot takes. L- look, all that said, the point is they brought they brought Trebek in when he wasn't really much of a known yeah. quantity nationally, right? So I get that you could like bring in somebody who you know this Mike Richards guy wasn't known nationally, but he's known on the show. Well, what if we looked at the broadcast, uh, the, the talented broadcast people that we have in our own. Uh, Denver Metro Colorado Ooh, media market. This is a fun. I think, and I'm. Uh, this is just me. I think if you're going to have two hosts, as they seem to want for some reason, which uh, doesn't make sense to me, but whatever. Who better than Denver Seven's own Shannon Ogden and Andrew Hio? I think. Bro, I think wow. our Denver Seven anchors uh, lead evening news anchors on Denver Seven. I think they would be excellent. I think you get Andrew Hio in there, and you get Shannon Ogden in there. They've both got the gravitas. They've got the the rapport. I mean, you, if you're going to have two hosts, you, they need to have rapport, I guess. Uh, even though they're not going to be hosting at the same time, it feels like you need them to have to be able to play off each other somewhat. I don't know. I'm just I'm putting that out there. I say wow. Denver Seven, Shannon and Ann, get them in there. Wow. So, Sony really pictures. getting into the, the politics of the local uh, media market here in Denver. I want to apologize <laughs> to our devoted listener, uh, Kyle Clark from Nine News. Oh, um, no. Kyle, Shots have been, have been taken here. Um, wow. Well, we'll see. I'm not, I mean, my big takeaway was, was just that, like, it seems really hard, actually. Like, the mechanics of it seem really hard because there's a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, and your ability to come off, like... Like, like I was interested. I watched some of the Aaron Rodgers episodes. Right. Um, he really uh, wanted it. Really like wanted he, he it. Made, he made, which I kind of respect, actually. He was, he stepped out there and he's like, you know what? I would really like to do this. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, man. Why not? Why not say that if that's true? You know, when you're in a big public dispute with the football team that you also work for, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's part of it. But like, I feel like that's a meaningful thing to do step out there but you know my opinion i don't know what your opinion was about him but 
I don't know if he kind of gave off the natural warmth that you mm. that you need. Super stiff, I felt like. Yeah, and maybe he would grow into it. Like I don't know. I, that's hard to. Say. I mean, that was my takeaway was that like so many of the guest hosts that I followed, um, like I wanted Lavar Burton to come on and be great. You know, right? Oh my gosh, um, the internet! All the internet wanted that, right? I mean, I like the idea of Lavar doing it, but he also was pretty stiff, right? Like the guests are pretty stiff because you only get it for a week, and like, which is only pretty... one day of taping. I mean, I can, yeah, you, know, you can read this on the internet now; it's more widely known. Right. But like, it was not known so much by my peers and friends and family when I was on the show years ago. But like, they do five episodes a day, <laughs> so yeah. they are blasting through it. And so you get one guest host who gets in there at like. 6.30 in the morning, into makeup, boom, they're shooting three episodes in the morning, have lunch, two in the afternoon, and then you're done. So yeah. I'm not surprised that, you know, people came off stiff. So maybe, like, LeVar could be the same thing. Like, yeah. he just needs more time to, like, grow into the role. And clearly, like, people were excited about him. There were some of the other hosts people were excited about, too, like, intrigued by. So, I don't know, Katie Couric was on mm -hmm. there, right? I think she did a pretty good job, as far as I heard. I don't know. So yeah. that's that's my hot take, though. Shannon and Ann. Look, I, have, I would have nothing against Sony Pictures Studios reaching out to Kyle Clark and getting him in there. I think he would also do a great job. I'm just I want to build up our Denver media market as like a source of it's a good media market. Hosts. You know, I've been in, well, I've been in some media markets. This is a good one. Yeah. Right. We, we do a pretty good job. We're not. Mm -hmm. No. I mean, Kyle Clark is not everybody's uh, cup of tea, but mm. I do respect the uh, playing with the genre a bit, right? As Luke, trying to keep local news um, relevant because this isn't too far away from our actual topic here, right? Like being yeah. informed about local issues is really important. And in the days of like Sinclair broadcasting and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. um, local news is, is not as strong as it once was. And so uh, the next right. with Kyle Clark is a good it's, – it's super engaging and local and thoughtful and like – yeah, Not I like I like what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's it is non yeah sort of non traditional in in that. And I mean, uh, yeah, not to get not to get too ponderous, but uh, you know, the the local media market that I grew up in was even smaller than than Colorado. And but but when I was growing up, they had a very robust you know local newspaper and like three local TV stations covering the region. And, you know, that's that's pretty significant. And now that that newspaper is owned by, a, you know, one of the national newspaper groups, Gan Gannett, I Gannett, think. Gannett, uh, yeah. Gannett and uh, has has shrunk significantly in staff and, and scope and size. And our, our local stations are now down to two because two of them merged. So, you know, I don't know. It it doesn't it doesn't have to be the way that it was. Right. Like we don't have to be beholden mm -hmm. to the past. And yet, I mean, ugh, I don't know just there's there's great value to what what we're learning about locally because i don't know policy starts policy starts at home now is that that's not really true is it I, i'm sort of thinking about my pretty sure uh, policy philosophy. starts in corporate boardrooms right my philosophy of public policy i'm just sort of uh, i'm gonna make up on the fly right now but mm -hmm. yeah public policy developed by you know some unknown entity out there but then you know we the, the people, people at the very least get to say something about it uh on our ballot uh, or through our elected representatives who then vote on it so you know there's 
Well, we're glad, listener, that you are choosing uh, a newish form of media to educate yourself about uh, statewide issues here Indeed. in the centennial state. Peter, uh, we got direct democracy here, whether we like it or not. It's the reality in which we live. And we got three uh, ballot initiatives to consider today. We do. It's very exciting. Uh, and, and hopefully the fact that there's only three means that it is sort of digestible to our voters. Hopefully it means that uh, you will consider even voting on your ballot measures first. That is, mm. that is our sort of uh, informal advocacy every year is to start with your ballot measures before you get to the candidates because I feel like uh, the candidates are going to be the ones grabbing more headlines and not for nothing probably – spamming your mailbox with lots of mailers all the time, uh, at least up until you vote. Uh, yet another plug reminding Colorado voters that as soon as you get that ballot returned in the mail or in a Dropbox, uh, the campaigns will stop mailing you things. So uh, a reason to do that. But yeah, we, we say vote, vote, vote your ballot measures first because uh, these are probably going to be slightly more involved. And so you might want to have like more of your brain power available when you're thinking about these things because... Like we're saying, this is direct democracy, whether we <laughs> whether we like it or not. That's probably a good way to put it. It's worth mentioning as well, in case we have any uh, degenerates listening to the podcast here who are not going to be voting in the state of Colorado and want to listen mm. to this episode anyway. Uh, mm. I while I, I I will complain about direct democracy and ballot initiatives um, as like questioning their uh, as is our right, you know, yeah. Uh, I don't know that it's the best way to organize a government, uh, but I do think the best way to do voting is is Colorado's uh, vote by mail system in which my ballot arrived uh, at my house a couple weeks ago. and I didn't have to like special request it or find a notary public uh, and I can just drop it back in the mail or the day of I could drop it in a box. I can drop it in a box before the day of. Um, Indeed. You didn't have to provide a, a hair sample or a blood no. sample. Uh, I mean, I did, but I didn't have to. <laughs> you did. <laughs> right. You tucked a little bit in there in the ballot and, and just in case the secretary of state needs to, you know, mm -hmm. double, double, triple, quadruple check. Hey. Right. That's fair. My signature is not very consistent, so. <laughs> <laughs> they might be calling you to cure your ballot. Mm hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's that's a good plug. And I would second that plug. I having um, come from other places where I voted, uh, having to request a ballot, you know, it wasn't wasn't ever particularly onerous. Again, back in the day, things are changing in many states. But Colorado, boy, can't can't say enough about how nice it is to just have it show up in your mailbox and then you can just get to vote, return it at the local library or your local uh, school or wherever you have a ballot drop box. Uh, especially or just in, in a in put a, a stamp on uh, it and mail it back. Yeah. Especially in an odd year when uh, mm -hmm. I'm not seeing a million TV commercials right now reminding me that I need to vote soon. Right. Exactly. You're not uh, you're not inundated, and yet, boy, election day happens every year. Uh, mm -hmm. Not just not just in those divisible by two. Well, should we dive into these? Yeah, uh, Peter, these I got measures? my ballot right here. I'm going to skip over at your it. recommendation. Um, <laughs> I'm going to skip over City of Louisville City Council Ward 3. There's only one person running. And then I got some school district mm. stuff to figure out. Uh, oh and boy. for one of the first times ever, uh, I feel like I should really vet these people. Um, <laughs> it turns out uh, school boards uh, real hot, have real hot power. topic. They have real power. 
uh, yeah, real hot topic nationwide. Uh, I, I also had school board people on my ballot uh, for Jefferson County, uh, Jeffco, as they call it, in on the hot sheets. And yeah, there were school board candidates, three different three different offices being filled and, and multiple candidates for each one. So I had to go and do some research, even though I, as a childless adult, do not personally have a child in these school districts. Uh, it still feels like the stakes are significant, you know. A lot of a lot of my mills go to support that uh, <laughs> the the education system in in the county and the state. So I feel like I I owe it to the mills to to know who I'm voting on. You know, you do, Peter. <laughs> one of my favorite things to do mm-hmm. is to change the constitution in the state of Colorado. And uh, yes, just for the hell I know of you it, love that. I love yep. it. Because you can do it whenever you want. I mean, not whenever you want. Every year you have the opportunity to change the the, the constitution of our beloved state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it appears on my ballot uh, mm-hmm. that I have a chance to do it again. I appreciate that this is Amendment 78, Peter, though it's yeah. the only amendment on this piece of paper. Yes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Amendment 78 is indeed uh, the, the one constitutional amendment among these three. Um it was initiated by a citizen group, which is why it has a number. Uh, you may have, you may remember, our. It, it took us a couple tries to to fully get slavery banned in our state, um, but we did. We did. A, we did do it uh, with Amendment A, and so you might remember. You know, okay, there's letters sometimes. Yeah, the letters mean that the legislature has referred it to the ballot, but this year, um, because it has a number, it's a citizen thing. And yeah, get to. Get the chance to potentially amend our Constitution again, because I know you love it, Zach. Um, This is a measure called Legislative Authority for Spending State Money. And if you're not already falling asleep, uh, let me just get you right back into it and say uh, this is all about uh, who has the power to spend money in our state. Uh, So if you're excited about figuring this out, Follow us. Follow us for a second. So, what this would do, it would it would prohibit state agencies from spending money that they get for specific purposes, and they call this custodial money. It's money that comes from the federal government. Uh, it's money that comes from um, uh, gifts in some cases. It's money that is sometimes like one-time legislative allocations, like the coronavirus relief funds, for example. This measure would prohibit that money from being spent uh, without a direct allocation by our state legislature. So money coming in, for example, like the COVID relief funds. Uh, The legislature was not in session uh, at the time that some of this money came in. And so the governor, the governor had the power then to allocate the money. And that was true anyway, but uh, I don't mean to confuse the listeners, but uh, the the position of this amendment is that uh, is that they they didn't like that they didn't like that the governor sort of had the sole discretion to spend this money that came in. Uh, this would require that the legislature have a public hearing to allocate any money that's spent out of this fund that would be created, and all this custodial money would be put in there. And so the legislature would have to have a hearing. The public could come and show up and and speak their mind on it. So, what what do we think about this? Uh, do you now, Zach? Having heard that description, mm-hmm. does it like does it land in any way for you, or is it just kind of like, ugh, this is just bureaucratic rigmarole? I can understand uh, bureaucratic. I cannot understand bureaucratic rigmarole. I want to be clear about that. <laughs> I can understand how that would be the perspective. What I'm hearing, Peter, right, is uh, a response to uh, you know 
sound my guess, right? The coronavirus relief funds mm-hmm. and how they were spent and that that we've seen locally and nationally um uh real um uh, Strong reactions to the executive branch at the state level uh, and the power the governors have to, to have mass mandates and to spend stuff. And so I would see this. I'm hearing this as a kind of response to curtail uh, the power of uh, our governor here locally, my neighbor, Jared Polis. Yes. Uh, so your neighbor, Jared Polis, who happens to also be governor, he uh, when when that that CARES Act money came in. There was like uh, slightly north of one and a half million dollars, uh, billion with a B, and so he he basically was able to act on his own to to do that last, and this was last year during the the beginning of the height of the pandemic when the legislature had adjourned, was recessed for a, a good while. The governor had the power to, to dole that out. So, yeah, there, there is like this political component, uh, I should say a partisan component, that is worth noting uh and i and i just note it to say that like you know these things don't come out of nowhere right they're not there's nobody who's like really sitting at home and like you know i really want to get involved in state government but i'm not sure how i think i want to propose a constitutional amendment to change how federal custodial funds are allocated (laughs) that's not what happened um the governor as you know is uh, a democratic party member um the group that put this on the ballot is a conservative group. It's called Colorado Rising Action. And understandably, uh, this conservative group was maybe not as pleased that a Democratic governor had this sort of sole discretion to allocate all of this money. So they, they, are, they are the ones who brought this to the ballot. They say that it's about transparency and accountability. Um, they want these sort of public hearings, things like that. So that's that's like the stated aim of what what they're doing here. So I, I want to just give sort of a fair shake to that side of things. That said, um, as you noted, Zach, you 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 alluded at the top of the show to the fact that we do have a position on all three of these. Yeah. So I'm going to try to explore this as as even handedly as I can before we mm-hmm. get to you know our position. Um, People will will get, I should say, in the mail their blue book, right? The blue book is going to have your pro and con arguments. It's uh, it's the guide that the state of Colorado sends to every voter, and uh, you you will be able to like think through, you know, some of the arguments that each group was able to file um, with the Secretary of State to to get printed in the blue book. So you you have pro and con arguments in there. So I'm not going to rehash that too much, but I do want to say that, the, as I said, the proponents are all about. You know, saying this is about transparency and accountability. They want the public to be uh, able to have a say uh, in where this money is allocated. And to to be fair, Colorado has a law uh, on the books, an open hearing law, meaning that during the legislative session, every bill that gets introduced has to have at least one public hearing. So it's a requirement that all of the legislation that comes through uh, at least once, the public has to have a chance to show up Anyone can show up, anyone can sign up and speak their mind on what's being voted on. So I think that is where they're deriving this idea that, like, the public should have a hearing, uh, mm-hmm. that they can speak to how all this money is being spent. Because, you know, we have a we have a general fund, we have a budget every year, but there's a lot of money that comes through the state that does not pass through the general fund. It doesn't pass through the legislature's oversight. Um, so I think there's some argument 
that that's where we want the public to weigh in. So you, Zach, as the public, you could sign up and say, I want to go down there and talk about where our federal highway funds are going. And I'm sure you would do that because I know oh, you have lots of opinions. I do have about, highway opinions, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Transportation in, in general. Uh, you know, you're, you as a commuter of velocipedes and uh, mm-hmm. scooters and other uh, Vespas probably. As a former I mean, you, civil engineer, I have oh my goodness. many hot takes. Yeah, wow. So mm-hmm. so you, you as a former civil engineer and now uh, general gadfly slash raconteur, I'm not sure how you... <laughs> identify right now that's on my card yeah (laughs) you could go and speak to this so so that's kind of the that's sort of the pro side right the con side here um is that this is gonna uh this is gonna change how the legislature functions this is gonna make the legislature uh, a lot more directly responsible for getting money that we receive from the federal government which happens all throughout the year uh allocated and spent in a timely way. And you may know, Zach, that the legislature only meets four months a year in Colorado. Oh, yeah. So we are not a full-time legislature. No time off for advocacy, but plenty of time for legislation. Exactly. Uh, yeah, get get elected as a legislator, get eight months off. That's, that's a... <laughs> I'm just thinking of the legislators to whom I might say that, and they would be furious <laughs> with me saying that they get eight months off, which they don't. Uh, it's worth saying, too, that the, the money that they're compensated uh, is not yeah. really enough to live mm-hmm. almost anywhere in Colorado. So that, this is not is that, is that fairly common across the country, the state legislatures are – are there like full-time state legislatures? Yeah, I would say – I mean I, I'm not going to be able to give you an exact number off the mm-hmm. top of my head, but there are – uh, a lot of states that do have full-time legislatures, and there the, there are some that you might expect. Um, you know, California, Pennsylvania, Illinois, um, states where like the legislature—it's not necessarily like they're they're like meeting every single day. They have they kind of function like Congress, mm-hmm. where they'll meet and then they'll have like three a weeks recess, off, yeah. and then they'll come back. And so they're they're just like cycling through the year. They're just meeting like on a regular basis. And it's in California in particular. I mean, California's a unique situation in a lot of ways, but they, they are allocated money for like staff and they are paid a salary that is, you know, it's like a full-time job salary. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. Other States. Yeah. Like ours are not full-time. Even Texas is not a full-time legislature. Hmm. They only meet every other year. Uh, so that's a whole source of debate uh, for a state as large as Texas. It's great. Our neighbors in New Mexico, uh, the, the state legislators, uh, meet part-time they have a session of differing lengths like uh, i think it's 30 days one year and 60 days the next year and they're only paid like a per diem they don't even hmm. get a salary so there are states there are states like yeah. that too yeah so colorado's kind of in between in that we meet yeah it's a third of the year they are paid a salary but it's not it's not that much um, it's not really enough to sort of fully live on so most of our legislators are either retired and you know, they have their sort of retirement income or they're they're doing other jobs that they can like flexibly work in with the legislature. Um, there's some attorneys in there. There's some physicians. There's uh, people with a lot of education background or advocacy background, things like that. Um, some campus pastors. Yeah. Campus pastors. Yeah, I guess I that could be. Um, boy, I try to keep uh, on top of legislators <laughs> that have a connection to a. Uh, Christian community of some kind, mm. but eh, anyway, 
who can say? So anyhow, all that said, the legislature, if Amendment 78 passes, might have to uh, change pretty radically how they function. Because if they have to oversee the spending of all this money, I mean, it would arguably, and I'm not, this is not what the, the amendment does, mm-hmm. but I think you could make a strong case that the legislature would have to become a year-round legislature. Gotcha. They'd have to start meeting all year round because they're going to have to make these decisions all the time. They can't have a special session every time they need to spend federal highway funds mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and and also, though, this because this money is coming in all the time uh, at sort of regular intervals throughout the year, they can't wait until January or whenever during the session, January through early May, to, to decide when they're going to spend this. Because a lot of the agencies, departments, whomever that depend on this money, they can't just wait for that money to sit around for eight months uh, before the legislature gets around to meeting. So you could argue this is going to increase bureaucracy, increase the amount of time and money the legislature has to spend on this. Um, I, I mean, I don't mean to put it in sort of a partisan way, but this is, you could, I think, credibly argue that this is expanding government. This is mm-hmm. making our government bigger. Um in a, in, a, in a desire, I acknowledge, to try to make it more publicly accountable, so they say, on the pro side. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think voters should consider that. I think um, I think people of faith, Lutherans in particular, uh, our perspective on this, we, we encourage people to view public policy through this lens of, like, how does it impact our most vulnerable neighbors? You know, well, how, what, does this serve the good of my neighbor? And we have a social statement on economic life that talks about government regulations, government, the process of government. And it says that they, they shouldn't be so burdensome as to stifle the production of the very goods and services people need to live. Well, that's a little bit indirect, acknowledged, but I think there is an argument that uh, increasing the bureaucracy of the process by which money is spent on goods and services that benefit people throughout the state is is indeed stifling uh, if you're going to put it through this sort of new and different rigmarole. Uh, I don't know that the harm that is claimed by the supporters of this amendment is so significant that uh, it merits this kind of really expansive change. Um, I think it's more likely, and we say this in our voter guide, uh, that that this will make the process of government more efficient, more cumbersome. Uh, It'll be Difficult to provide federal support in the same sort of timely manner uh, for these different departments. So if you're thinking about, you know, trying to balance public trust in, the, in our in our decision makers, our governor, our government agencies and departments versus this this push to increase public oversight that is rather bureaucratically expansive, uh, I think it's probably more likely that's going to benefit wealthier, more institutional, more corporate interests that can do that lobbying on a year-round basis. Um, it's not to say that our lobbying system is perfect, but I think it's going to benefit those organizations that have the power to show up all year round, all the time, to, sh- to speak whatever their interest is into the hearings where this money's being spent. So now, Zach, is that just like overwhelmingly outrageous or what, how does that strike you? What do you, what do you think about all this? Sounds good. Uh, yeah. Sounds good. I mean, not. It doesn't. You know, your explanation sounds good. That's what I mean. Fair. Not the. Not the. <laughs> the idea it's, sounds good. It's very um, kind of you. Yeah, I think. Uh, speaking just out of my personal uh, political deal, um, the that 
I'm not sure that uh, excessive executive power is is great mm-hmm. uh, in of itself, but also I don't know that the legislative branch of government has ever been less effective, uh, you know, and I, that's mostly informed from a national level. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm leery of the efficacy of, of, of putting more power and responsibility into the branch of government that at least these days feels least um, able to get stuff done. And I think that's what uh, God calls me to be concerned about with my neighbor because they would like to be fed today and not in eight months. Indeed. Yeah. So I would say, you know, our position on this uh, from our Lutheran advocacy perspective is no, we we oppose this measure. Um, I think as, as I'm wont to say about a lot of our work, um, I think people of faith can reasonably disagree about this one. Um, so I, I, I say that all to say my usual caveat to our regular listeners, uh, as you know, I would never say that this is how a Lutheran must uh, act uh, on this particular ballot measure. This is just our recommendation of things to think about. It's our analysis of the position. Uh, and when I say our, I mean the Lutheran Advocacy Office, our policy committee that oversees these decisions, which is composed of lay people. A shadowy cabal of people. Right. We're very shadowy. (laughs) You know, we meet, we do meet in the daytime. So it's worth, worth noting that, but uh, yeah, very shadowy. We, we are the ones. The demographics probably necessitate daytime meetings, I'm guessing. I think so. Well, if you mean in the sense that we're, uh, well, we're not vampires. Is that... (laughs) I don't know yeah. what demographics. Yeah, no, I've been really enjoying what we do in the shadows. Uh, yes. so not vampires. Oh, great show, love it. Oh, um, so good. So anyhow, yeah, that's that's that. I want to make sure people hear that and say that we're not saying this is how you must vote. If in order to be a faithful Lutheran, I think you can be a faithful Lutheran and vote. Either way, on this. That said, we have had a chance to actually sit down with our social teaching and theology and really think carefully about how, what we think the impact is. And, and yeah, this is where we think it is. And so we're recommending a no vote on this one. So there awesome. it is. That's Amendment 78. Boom. I don't have a magic eight ball. Uh, so we cannot <laughs> predict the future this time around, though uh, we just moved offices. And, and I do. I did come across the eight ball in my bag of props that I haven't used oh. in a very long time. So <laughs> the eight ball could tell us whether this is going to pass or not. Mm, I'll have to maybe I'll find like a uh, little uh, little free dumb computer program on the internet. Right. You know. Are you? Well, you could uh, you could engage. I mean, I don't know how you feel about other forms of um, mm, sortition and casting of lots. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, Claromancy, if you will. I mean, you could uh, you could roll some dice, you could throw some bones. Yeah. Could, uh, Let me search around here, Peter. See what I can find. Drop a uh, feather. I mean, I'm not sure. Okay, I've got a. I'm not a real D and D kind of guy, but I, I oh, do no. have a ten sided die here. Um, and so, uh, how's this work? Ooh, so a ten sided die. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, maybe we'll say in in terms of likelihood of passing from one to 10, mm-hmm. you know, 10 being the most likely call it 
call it times 10 in terms of our likelihood percentage. That's, I think that's, that's what our listeners will appreciate most. We want to give listeners different options, right? right. Like if you'd like to vote based on the social teachings of the Lutheran church and thoughtful reflection of Peter and his shadowy cabal of (laughs) of faithful uh, folks who've, who've really looked into the issues that the, they, they suggested no. Yes. And now we're going to turn to the runes uh, and we're going to cast some runes here uh, and see what the runes have to say. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Fell off the table. So I was disappointed. Well, that can't be a good sign. That's not Ooh, a good sign. Zach, I actually have an opinion about what that means, but yeah, please, what does that please mean? roll. Uh, oh, no. No, I think that's, well, that's what happened. Here's, here's what I think. You can't dictate the rune. This is, this is, the rune is the, the dice rolled off the table. And I think what that suggests to me, something I didn't mention earlier, is that Amendment 78 is being challenged in court right now. And it's possible that it will be uh, nullified by a decision of the court, regardless of what the people of Colorado decide. Uh, because, as we mentioned at the top of the show, things on these odd-numbered ballots, these off years, have to be Tabor-related. And there mm-hmm. is a, I would say, a pretty strong argument that this is not Tabor-related in any meaningful way. Right. Um, so I think what the rune is telling us is that it is going to be uh, nullified. It won't struck matter down. what the public says, and it will be struck down by the court. Like so a die to the floor. But <laughs> well, with that, Peter, I have a proposition for you. Really? Yeah, it's Proposition 119. Oh, oh, that one. Right, okay. I was, you know, not sure where that was going to end, but uh, (laughs) I'm excited about Proposition 119's discussion here uh, because this is is pretty interesting. And I think you, as, um, you know, the father of a... You know, as a father, as a father, part, yeah, as a, as a father, it might have opinions about you know education, mm, programs, opportunities uh, in in maybe a different way than I um, might have. So, I want I want to hear your take uh, in that with that specific lens uh, on. But yeah, Prop One Nineteen. This is called Learning Enrichment and Academic Progress Program. Leap, if you will, L-E-A-P. So for all of our uh, Leap Day fans out there, you know, wear your blue and yellow. Uh, This is talking about raising taxes on retail cannabis uh, and using some other existing state funds, the State Land Trust in particular, to create uh, what they're calling the Colorado Learning Enrichment and Academic Process Program, the Leap Program. So it would create a new state agency for after-school tutoring, for learning programs, Uh, This would be governed by a board of appointees that the governor would appoint. And it's different. It's separate from the Department of Education. Uh, So the the program that's that's on on offer here would be a a new separate thing. It would not be housed under the the DOE, if that makes sense. Uh, So there's an interesting mechanism at work here. Right. So we're talking about using. cannabis funds, cannabis tax revenue um, to do this. It would increase the sales tax rate from, I think it's 15% now, it would go up to 20%. Uh, over the course of three years, It would that would be incrementally raised. The estimate is that that would raise about $140 million per year. Uh, this is, I should just say as well, this is just um, recreational cannabis does not apply to medical uh, marijuana. So this would, and it would also take some money from, as I said, the state land trust to pay for this. Uh, the state land trust is something where uh, state-owned, state-held lands generate, you know, tax revenue. That revenue is 
dedicated right now completely to school funding, you know, through Department of Education. So it would divert some of that money to pay for this. Hmm. So um, this is being proposed by uh, uh, Gary Community Ventures. Uh, a lot of people, those who are, might, are familiar with kind of the nonprofit or foundation landscape in Colorado have probably heard of Gary, Gary Community Investments. Um, so this would create this program. It would be, uh, they could be run by a private provider or a public school. They could have tutors that are teachers or maybe not public school teachers. Um, they would be paid for by tuition fees that the participants in the program would pay. Although there are mechanisms to, uh, potentially provide scholarships for low income students. And there is a sort of stated preference in the measure for low income students, um, that's kind of the that's kind of what we're talking about is like after school programs tutoring things that are kind of outside the normal school day so now zach as a father as a father uh, as as a father how does this how does this strike you and you don't have to actually answer just as a father but what is this how does this sound to you kind of on on its face on its face the strange part to me is the is the outside of department of the uh the department of education uh, part that, that, that raises red flags for me. Uh, you know, uh, I, I support education. I'm in favor of the state supporting education. Uh, particularly I've got a vested interest, um, in the state increasing its, um, support of higher education, which it does is at, at nationally low levels. Right. But, but having, I mean, that's, those are all words that, that sound good, right? <laughs> Tutoring. Right, uh, disadvantaged I mean, I folks. Tutoring sounds great. I mean, the and, and there's there's language in here too. Uh, if you read the blue book, that the proponent side talks about the potential um, gaps in educational progress that happened throughout the pandemic. You know, disparate impacts in virtual learning on different communities, low income people in various communities across the state, in particular. The the argument is those students are falling behind more. And so we want to create a program that makes it easier for them to kind of catch up um, and be, be supported in an additional way in getting, getting to where they need to be. So yeah, I love, I love tutoring. It's all, great. it's all great stuff. Uh, thing is for me, I, uh, in addition to being a father, I'm a son uh, and I'm a son of a public school teacher. Uh, and I tend to think that the folks, uh, who are engaged in education, uh, uh, immersed in it, uh, probably have a really better idea, uh, than, than other folks about what would best help people learn, students learn things. Um, so just some red flags that there would be like an extra, for lack of a better term, extra judicial elite learning team um mm. out and about uh strikes me as strange uh and that it would not be incorporated into the department of education yeah you know our our policy committee uh that was kind of the first thing that jumped out at us too um uh, the idea that we're going to create a different separate program uh outside of the department of education in some ways kind of competing with the department of education in terms of like they're offering these kinds of services, I, I grant that they're you know they're doing it under sort of a different banner, or a different imprimatur. So it'd be clear that in theory that this is some other thing. Uh, 
but in practice, I don't know if people are going to get that distinction on the ground. They might think, oh, yeah, this is like a school thing. It's tutoring. I'm assuming my my property taxes or whatever else pays pays for this in the way that it normally does. Well, no, that wouldn't really be the case. Um, this would be paid for by people purchasing recreational cannabis. So, yeah, the first part there being separate, we were concerned that this is overseen by uh, a board that is a purely partisan appointed board. The governor is a partisan office. Mm -hmm. And so whoever is the governor, whatever party they are, they are the ones who are appointing the nine members on, on this board that oversees the program. So if you don't like the party of the governor, you might not be super happy with who the governor appoints uh, or whatever their perspective is on education uh, to oversee this program. The other piece there that I think is the more salient piece that I should say for our kind of guide in terms mm -hmm. of our ELCA position, our social teaching, we, um, we're pretty concerned about the mechanism for how this is being funded. Uh, we're talking about raising cannabis taxes, uh, which you might, you, some people call those sin taxes, right? Taxes on alcohol and cigarettes and cannabis and things like that. Um, this, this would be the primary mechanism to fund this. I, I grant that they're diverting some other money from the land trust, but like a lot of the money is coming from this, this tax increase. We have a, a social statement on education. We also have a, a not as not nearly as widely known, I'm assuming, a social policy resolution really focused primarily on school vouchers, but but talking about education funding in general. And it the questions that it asks, I think, are really helpful. And there's two in particular. One question is, to what degree does the proposal, any proposal that this could apply to, ensure just, equitable, and long-term viable sources of funding? So that's one question. The, the second question is, to what degree does the proposal provide public schools the support and resources necessary to fulfill their tasks? So I think that second question speaks to what we've been saying, that like, is this supporting public schools and fulfilling their task? Well, no, it's actually creating a totally separate thing outside of public schools, funded in a totally different way. So I think that's concerning. The first question, though, is, is what I mean to, to focus on. To what degree does this ensure just, equitable, and long-term viable sources of funding? Well, I mean, I don't know that retail cannabis, like recreational cannabis, is going anywhere. So I, in terms of a long-term source, you could argue that it's long-term. But is this just and equitable? I think that's a lot more thorny of a question. Uh, and we, 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 have a, we have a belief in our social teaching that our public goods, uh, goods and services, things that our government carries out that provides to us, should be supported by equitably collected tax revenue. Um, that that in, in the current system that we have of representative democracy, that that's what we believe should be the primary and first choice for how we fund uh, goods that we all depend on, which education pretty darn squarely falls in there. I mean, I don't know. People may have different opinions about uh, education, but I like education, Zach, and I'm not afraid to say that. I know it's a hot take. Oof. Uh, Best way to fight poverty. <laughs> This, you know, I, well, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think this is, um, this is a great example of, a, uh, uh, in a situation where they're trying to fund something through a use tax, uh, which inevitably a say a use sales tax is inevitably going to fall more, uh, intensely 
and it's going to impact more directly people that are lower income. So this is this is always the case with you know tobacco cigarette taxes as well. You're talking about increasing taxes um, across the board for a single product at a single price point. That is inevitably like that's that's just math. It's going to fall more uh, directly and impact more directly people that are lower income. So we don't think this is a just or equitable funding mechanism, and so that's the reason that we are saying no on Prop 119, that our, our position is opposed. Because we, we're really concerned that this is this is how they're choosing to fund this. I think, I think, as I said before, people of faith can reasonably disagree about whether we should have a sort of separate tutoring program, a separate education program. You can disagree or agree about the way that this is being set up, where you know we're prioritizing low-income students for scholarships, it's, but it's not restricted to low-income students. Uh, they're prioritizing public school teachers to be, quote, qualified providers of tutoring, but it's not restricted to public school teachers. So you could have private entities coming in and, you know, doing their sort of for-profit effort at whatever it is that they want to provide in terms of tutoring. You know, you can disagree about all that, sure. Uh, we have concerns about that, too. But I think the main piece here is using this this syntax uh, to to fund this program. And we just don't think that that is the way we should do it. I mean, if we're going to do it, we should support our existing Department of Education publicly accountable to all of us already through a just and equitable tax regime. So that's where we're at. You know, Peter, I <laughs> my my socioeconomic background <clears throat> mm. uh, has has led me to, to primarily encounter economics and funds from a place of scarcity. Mm. Um, that's how, for whatever reason, right? That's how I uh, ended up being formed as a young adult. That's where I, where I got shot out of the world, um, and so it's been a really refreshing thing for me. Uh, as as I'm a campus pastor, and a part of that means I'm kind of like the uh, executive director of a small nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And so um, for years, when it's come down to doing budgetary things around stuff like salary or healthcare and, and those numbers and having to bring things like, um, like we've got, uh, Megan Fry, who's an incredible asset to our ministry, uh, program, uh, coordinator for us full time. Um, and, uh, we needed, we, we recognized that we needed to pay her much more than we were paying her and, and do health insurance. Cause she turned 27, right. Which means she aged out yeah. of her parents' health care, right. Like, um, and so I was all nervous that I was going to, Oh, we've got to do this. I got to ask for this money, like from the board and stuff. Right. Um, and so really helpful, reassuring to hear, um, all the times that I've done that to hear from, from the leaders on our board that say, uh, Oh no, this is, yeah, we'll, yeah, we should do that. Let's do that. We'll figure out how to do it because that's what if we want to have Megan working for us, we have to actually pay for Megan working for us or you working for us. Uh, And that's what we do in order to have the things we want um, to have the kind of ministry we want, you know. And so like to have an have an educated, um, diverse democracy uh, is something that I think we want because as Christians, we probably are called to want because I think that's the best thing for our neighbors. Um, and because that's a thing that we want, you know, we should probably just pay for it, um, you know, and not do crazy acrobatics to try to find money in order to have a thing we want. Um, Indeed. If it's a priority, as it should be. 
And the most people, as we, we led the discussion on this, right, with talking about how, like, everybody loves these words, right? If we love yeah. those words, let's just pay for them because we like them. It's one reason that I think this might be more likely to pass than either of the other two things on the ballot, just because people hear those words. And I, I like that people are inclined to favor the idea of tutoring and education, and they want, like, they want to support that, sure. Um you know, but but I think what this measure is is doing is saying, well, just pay no attention to who's behind the curtain here in terms of how we're actually paying for this thing or how it actually operates. Just like, just know that we're doing tutoring. Tutoring for good, good things for puppies. <laughs> <laughs> What's the polling like? Uh, do you have any idea, Peter? I'm just curious. Uh, mm -hmm. Statewide polling on like cannabis, like, because um, if you because if. I'm just curious because, uh, you know, it, it, I understand how syntax works and, and historically labeling cannabis is a part of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder in a state where we've had legal cannabis uh, for a while now, mm -hmm. whether it's it's being seen as more or less of a sin than it in terms of syntaxiness than it than it used to be. That's a yeah, that's a really good question. I um, I mean, I sort of use that term kind of loosely. So listeners should not uh, take this as a sign that I think the use of cannabis is sinful in some inherent way. Uh, no more sinful than anything that any one human creature does in any given day, I would say. Um, no, it's uh, that's that's that is a loaded term. Yeah, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to tell you polling. I can't quote polling off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, my my instinct and I'll actually this is a great example of local ballot measures might reveal some new things about this because there are municipalities around the state that are continuing to vote on whether or not they want to allow retail cannabis sales, um, including uh, Westminster, where I live. Uh, that's on the ballot. Westminster has not allowed retail cannabis sales because that was part of the state ballot measure. Local municipalities can decide and the sort of initial presumption is no, you have to like opt into yeah, this yeah. rather than opt out. So, um, I think that will that will that'll be revelatory to see how does some uh, you know us uh, uh, a Denver suburb like Westminster how do they vote on this you know seven years after the fact eight years later um, I my sense is yeah it's become even in that short time much more integrated into our sort of the background noise of what it is to live in Colorado like it's not even that special anymore there's all mm -hmm. kinds of states across the country that have passed retail cannabis sales to say nothing of medical which is even more widespread my home state of south dakota included past retail mm -hmm. recreational cannabis sales so <laughs> go figure right like this right. is not restricted in any way to some sort of red blue divide if you want to put it that way like i think colorado um has yeah taken this on as just like this is just part of our landscape now it's not anything weird or unusual uh yeah the industry could use more regulation maybe or maybe there could be more banking services available or whatever sure like all of that conceded because the, the the calculus right of of the political calculus i imagine is putting all of these buzzwords that we like puppies tutoring all that kind of stuff at the front Rainbows, end butterflies and then at the back end taxing stuff that that the presumption is uh, people do not like, right? Like, let's punish those smokers or those... Or the presumption is most people don't buy this, so the tax mm -hmm. won't affect you, but you'll benefit from the tutoring, right? Yeah. yeah, I well, I don't actually have good data as well on, like, use rates either, so that would be an interesting thing to compare. I mean, you would... 
presume as a baseline that most people who are like regularly purchasing recreational cannabis products are not going to be thrilled about increasing taxes on cannabis. So they are going to be more inclined to vote no. So there is a gamble there that like, okay, well, we can afford to have all those people vote no. Uh, We're just going to assume that like there's a majority over here that is willing to, to do this. That was always the case, I think, with cigarette taxes. And I think Mm -hmm. especially now, even in Colorado, where the smoking rate is, I think, among the lowest in the nation, um, it's easy to look at cigarettes and nicotine products and say, well, most of us don't use those. Let's just jack up the taxes. And that's like this never-ending source of money. Um, Part of our guidance on the most recent tobacco, like, tax increase from a few years ago not the vaping one but there was one on the ballot prior to that um our concern was the the same thing here this is an in it falls inequitably on lower income people who are more likely to be users of nicotine products anyway to pay for these things that we think should be funded more through a more equitable regime uh and and doing it through like a sales tax thing is not that (laughs) so you're right there is an interesting calculus there in terms of how they're how they're approaching it so i'm hearing uh here peter uh that the lutheran advocacy ministry colorado is uh recommending no we are recommending no on this one yes that is our that is our considered position on prop 119 as good as tutoring and puppies and rainbows sound uh using a cannabis tax to pay for this thing outside of the public publicly accountable department of education that would compete with it and be governed by partisan appointees. Uh, we don't feel great about it. So that well, is our opinion. there's only one thing left to do on that issue. And that is to turn to the runes. Uh, we'll see if we can keep it on the table this time. Yes. Uh, tell it'll me. be prophetic either way. Um, we're gonna keep this one on. Oh no, Peter. It's an tell eight. Me. It's an eight. Wow. Mm, the All runes right. are predicting a pass. So All right. That is a. We'll see if the ancient Nordic traditions are still uh, still true. All still of my true. Viking ancestors loved throwing dice. So oh, loved we'll it. See, we'll see if they do it. Let's uh, let's keep the tax talk going here, Peter, because that's what people <laughs> listen for on the podcast. They love the minutia. Oh, Welcome back to Tax Talk. Tax Talk. We are your uh, hosts. Talk to me about the tax of Proposition 120. Yes. Prop 120. This is the, the last of the three items on your ballot uh, statewide. Yeah, this is a uh, reducing the property tax rate. And here again, interesting legal challenge that is sort of the shadow side of this measure that is on your ballot. Uh, and in fact, you can you can see that there's legal wrangling going on because the language on your ballot, on your physical ballot, does not match the description in the blue book that you received. <laughs> not, not good. Which is just what you love. You love to have a government uh, publication like the blue book uh, not reflect the thing that you actually get in your hands on the ballot. So that's really great and really effective public policymaking. Um, I should say the language in the blue book is, is more accurate because the ballots were printed before, uh, this statutory change was made by the legislature. And this legal challenge was broached, uh, that, that changed the mechanism for what this is doing. So yeah, the title sounds pretty straightforward, lowering property tax rates. Okay. Uh, the legislature knew that this was coming, Uh, And so the legislature passed a bill at the end of the session called Senate Bill 293. And this was a a bill that 
made a distinction in the classification of what is a residential and non-residential property. It made it made sort of like a, a subclass of properties. And this was, a, I should say, a bipartisan bill. And uh, the idea of this bill was to ensure that a measure like this that was just an across-the-board reduction in our property tax rate um, would not actually apply to most residences, most homes and dwellings in the state. As, as it is applied now, it would only apply to what you would call multifamily units, um, units with multiple dwellings in them. So apartment buildings, um, hotels, things like that. Does not apply to condos, I should specify, but but it would apply to those kinds of buildings that have multiple units in them. So the impact fiscally before this change was made was going to be about a billion dollars. It's a billion with a B. Uh, the impact is estimated now, if it applies just to these multifamily and lodging properties, would be about $50 million. So we're talking... Uh, a 95% decrease in the amount of the impact. And where where's that money going? Well, the money is going primarily to local government entities, uh, by which we mean local districts that govern schools, fire districts, water, parks, libraries, things like that. That's going to be where the, the bulk of all of this revenue is being taken from, reduced, uh, eliminated, whatever word you want to use. So this is in court, and uh, I think yet again it's going to be decided after the election whether this actually applies to everyone or whether this uh, – I mean I should say every unit, every residential unit, or whether this applies uh, just to these multifamily properties. Yeah, so great. I hope that that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> who, who brought this? Uh, this, was, this was proposed by um, – uh, another the a group that you might have heard us talk about earlier in the podcast, Colorado Rising Action. It's a conservative advocacy group, so they're the ones who put Amendment seventy eight on the ballot as well as this one. Gotcha. So that is where this came from. The idea of this one here again was that the pandemic has resulted in um, fiscal crunch in a lot of households. Not a serial, but a, a real situation. Fiscal crunch uh, doesn't taste good, no matter what you put on it. And so the idea is this will reduce our, our taxes, right? They'll put money back in people's pockets uh, when they're, they're not, you know, maybe their job has been impacted by the pandemic, maybe the revenue of their business, what, what have you, right? The other argument that is made is that maybe this would provide some, you know, relief to renters, people who are living in apartment buildings, multi-unit dwellings, the owners of those units, if their tax burden is reduced, perhaps then it would be Surely they'll pass passed it down. along to renters. So, um, If I know anything right. about landlords in a college town, they always <laughs> pass the savings along. You know, Zach, you're... Um, you're correct. I, this, is a, this is a deep concern. I mean, the assumption that property tax relief uh, for an apartment building older owner would be passed along to the renters. Um, I think that is a very rosy assumption. <laughs> I, you could support like a, a rent relief bill. Yeah. That you know, directly addresses the issue. That's it's, interesting. It's interesting idea. that you would suggest um, doing something that would like statutorily require that sort of thing versus something that just depends on, you know, the goodwill of the uh, owner of the building. 
you know, I here here again. You're the pastor, right? I'm just I'm just <laughs> but a, but a lowly, humble lay person. But I seem to remember Zach somewhere in our liturgy. We talk about how, you know, all all of us uh, created beings uh, in humankind are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. Mm. And I wonder if that sort of perspective uh, on our anthropology, on mm. how we understand humanity, I wonder if that's uh, coming out here a little bit. Maybe we understand that, like, mm, we're all in bondage to this uh, this idolatry of the created thing versus the creator. The, the money we receive can become an idol, and uh, we might, if we're not forced to do so, we might be inclined to keep as much of that money for ourselves as we can. I don't know if that's good theology or not. It, it may not be. I, you know, as, as a, uh, a property owner in the state mm. of Colorado, which is the thing you want to be these days. Uh, it, it is very much so. <laughs> a lucrative thing. Full, full um, disclosure to our listeners, I also own a home in the state of Colorado. That, right? Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it really is one of my most, like, serious moral, qu- like, mm. things that I'm not going to do anything about because... Because <laughs> I've been bondage to sin, I guess. Right? Is the answer? Right. Um, you know that there have been years where I've made more money by owning my house than like through my labor. Um, mm. Property owners in the state of Colorado are not people who are really hurting these days. You know, sure, it's not like liquid and like it's tied up in a house and you can't move anywhere, and that it's not a perfect solution, right? Right. Um, but property values didn't go down in during the pandemic around here. Mm. Yeah. So the kinds of people who own like, and the kinds of people who own your multi unit dwellings uh, in general, I would assume are, are people, the kinds of people who own many, many uh, properties with uh, multiple dwellings and stuff, right. Who, uh, who are are well vested in property um, and Mm. who therefore I assume, uh, aren't the people that I'm thinking, gosh, we really need to help those people out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this is, uh, this is indeed a, a sort of quandary. I mean, it's, uh, I can imagine that here again, the idea is that you're putting language on the ballot that says, let's reduce our property taxes and any voter to who, who is subject to property tax in that like direct way in the sense that like I own a home and so I pay property tax directly. If you rent, I mean, you're doing so indirectly, obviously, but like they're, they're counting, I think, on the idea that like, yeah, I want to pay less. I want to keep more money for myself. And that, that that impulse is not always like, I'm not suggesting that impulse is always uh, sinful in any, mm-hmm. in any sense. Like, right. Like there are, yeah. it, it is true that there are people who have had, not even just because of the pandemic, but like that's the you know big recent example. Obviously, like they are having a real tough time, like paying for their home, staying in their home. I mean, this applies maybe more to seniors in particular, mm-hmm. who are on like these fixed incomes. Um, yeah, we're talking about like a real thing, like money that we need to, in some sense, we need to live. So I get that sort of foundational piece. However, here again, kind of going back to like Prop 119 with the way we're funding this, uh, what we're talking about is is reducing the property tax revenue that goes to pay for all of these other things that we also like and that we also benefit from, that, we, that are also services our government provides. Um, 
and a lot of these very locally. I mean, these are like, we're talking about like fire protection, <laughs> the fire protection districts that we live in. We're talking about like water services uh, in some cases, libraries and parks, schools, like all kinds of local government functions, which is part of why the bill that changed the mechanism behind this to just be, you know, multifamily units was bipartisan because there was this instinct that like this isn't actually just some, you know, this just because this came from a conservative group doesn't mean that conservative legislators aren't worried about the impacts across the state, regardless of the like partisan makeup of where you live. So I think that's that's an important thing to note. I should also note for our listeners, this isn't just about residential taxes. This also would lower commercial property taxes, which are at like 29 percent now dropped to like twenty six point four which is a big number, right? Like that's, it's always been way higher than our property tax rate. And there's a reason for that. And we don't need to get into that now, even though this is tax talk hosted by Peter and Zach. Uh, <laughs> so there, there is also a commercial side to this and it also has impacts on, um, uh, on Tabor. There is actually a direct Tabor impact here. So, uh, this would change the statute on Tabor that says in a year when we, when they have to give refunds to taxpayers, if we have quote unquote, too much revenue, um, it would allow the legislature to hold on to an extra $25 million as long as that money then gets allocated to property tax exemptions for seniors and veterans who have disabilities uh, from their service. So, yeah, they're, they're trying to build in a sort of Tabor thing, mm-hmm. so that's why it's on here. Uh, but, yeah, this is just uh, otherwise there's a big impact here and that beholdenness that you described to, like, other incentives that we might not um, like to think of ourselves as being beholden to like those are powerful things, and I think that's what this measure is trading upon. So, so that's a yes then from. <laughs> <laughs> Just um, it's a no. Yeah, we our 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 discernment uh, from the policy committee is a no on this one. Uh, this again, we kind of go back to um, a part of our economic life statement that we have we we reference a lot in our ballot measures uh, across the years because this just comes up a lot in terms of tax rates. We say in that statement, and I'm going to quote here, government is intended to serve God's purposes by limiting or countering narrow economic interests and promoting the common good. Paying taxes to enable government to carry out these and other purposes is an appropriate expression of our stewardship in society rather than something to be avoided. I think those are really um, well-discerned prophetic words uh, from our theology in terms of exactly the dynamic you were saying, Zach, like, how do we counter these like narrow interests? Like how do I, how do I, as somebody who's beholden to these interests um, that sort of start with myself, how do I expand my thinking and vision around this? Well, in a, in a constitutional democracy, we actually have mechanisms for incentivizing ourselves that are beyond just our own narrow personal interests. Not that those interests don't matter, but remembering that the common good is an interest that uh, is at least equal to that, that private interest that we have and that it deserves support as well. So we think that, yeah, our, our, our discernment is that there are better ways to achieve this kind of relief for taxpayers if that is really what is needed. Um, there's lots of other ways we could go about it than just an across-the-board tax reduction that once again, just in a mathematical sense, is going to benefit the wealthier property owners far more than it's going to benefit any individual person um, who might be experiencing economic hardship right now. So that's where we're at. Well, that's 
That's a no. That's three no's across the board. That's really easy uh, for y'all. Just remember, vote no, not no vote. That's right. Uh, The the order of those words is is important. Yeah, we learned that a couple years ago. (laughs) Vote. You know, one of our policy committee members, I I do appreciate this, said, you know, maybe we should have something that says vote no, as in K N O W, no. Before you vote no, there's something in there, and I'm not enough of a wordsmith. No in this vote moment. no, no vote no, no to vote no. I he wanted to emphasize that we want to mm-hmm. like know something about what you're voting on before you yeah. vote. The irony, of course, is that there are a lot of voters, and there is actually evidence of this, not just in Colorado but around the states that have these kind of measures. That like there's there's an inclination for people to kind of vote no as they're. It's like their natural instinct. Like there's some mm-hmm. measure trying to do something on the ballot, and you're just gonna no, say no, no. no. <laughs> yeah, no. People, Everything's people fine. are more inclined Status to say no quo. to something yeah. they don't know about. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, let's see what the runes have to say on Prop One Twenty <laughs> here. Let's let the always gotta let the Nordic gods, the Norse gods, uh, have their say. Mm-hmm. Oh, just a one. Not looking good. Wow. Prop One Twenty. Uh, okay. It's a no on both the uh, Christian god. Yep, and also <laughs> and the God Freya Odin, Freya Odin, Odin's uh, day. Yeah, uh, all of our all of our days of the week they're embedded right in there. Only half of them. Never forget Only half of them. Well, we got a few in there. Yeah, no, it's great. It's good to have some diversity in the days of the week. Yeah. Well, Peter, I've had another good time. Uh, I've had oh. so much fun that I think we should take a twelve-month break. Um, <laughs> let's do this again in twelve months. You know, I think that's a great idea, Zach. I really appreciate uh, Pod Bless America, and it's it's very very infrequent uh, publication schedule. Yet you enduring. Yeah, and yet an enduring tradition. Uh, it's a tradition, I would say, unlike any other that we have in terms of Colorado podcasting landscape. We may not have as much distribution as Purplish, the CPR politics podcast, mm. but I think we make up for it at heart. Yeah, I'm fairly certain we actually did start before them, so. Uh, I would I would agree as well. And I'm not just saying that because of, you know, I may have an enlarged heart in general. I'm saying we have <laughs> a lot of, we have we have the heart uh, and, and the, the plucky, uh, wherewithal to uh, scrap our way into the podcasting landscape. And, and indeed, we've become one of the top politics and faith podcasts in Colorado, I would say. I'd say. Uh, though you maybe should check out um, uh, Bread and Belonging alum, Luther Gabriel's Ministry alum, Karina Ulig's, uh newsletter, email newsletter that she curates uh, called Have Faith Colorado. Uh, Karina oh, writes oh. for the Aurora Centennial. Uh, and produces, publishes a, a weekly kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, collection of links um, mm-hmm. and some comments on uh, stuff happening in religious news in Colorado that's always neat and interesting to see. So check that Excellent. out. All right. A good plug. Karina Ulig, Have Faith Colorado. Check it out. Wow. Well, what a joy, Zach. Well, I... You know, I, I regret that we did not leave in time to address the nearly 120 other local ballot measures that are happening around the state of Colorado in this episode. You're on your own. Uh, <laughs> but we trust that uh, those people of faith listening, Lutherans in particular, but anyone listening uh, who's voting in Colorado will give their considered discernment to all of the stuff that is out there on your local ballot, whatever it may be. 
Well, with that, Peter, you're going to head to the doctor. Check out that enlarged heart. Uh, our listeners are going to head to the, the voter booth, the voting booth, or just their kitchen counters. Could be their kitchen um, counter. Mm-hmm. Until next time, uh, may pod bless America.